Professor Douglas Cunt shares sounds and stories about the early audio tape cut-ups he produced in the 1980s. Most notoriously, Reagan Speaks for Himself, which appeared as a flexi-disc inside Raw magazine. Cunt is a professor at the National Institute for Experimental Arts, NIEA, at the University of New South Wales and is best known as an historian and theorist of sound and the media arts. When invited to speak, Kant said, this is the first time anyone has asked me to talk about my own work. There are three or four decades pent up. This talk was recorded at Tape Projects on the 4th of September 2016. Well, first of all, thanks to uh, Michael and to uh, Joel and Liquid Architecture for asking me to do this. I'm a historian, writer. <clears throat> I write about everybody else, and I, th this is literally the first time I've been asked to uh, talk about the stuff that I've done, uh, from the, um, especially from the uh, uh, in the 1980s. I started earlier, but um, so we could be here all night, but uh, just go like this when uh, when we get too uh, too long on it. So um, I write about history of history and theory of sound and more recently energies. Um, the way I got started in sound, I'll just this was in 1975. <clears throat> so I guess that's history by now, so I can talk about it. I was doing an MFA at, at Cal Arts. <clears throat> um, well, first of all, I'm from a I'm from a military town. I was not supposed to be at Cal Arts and studying with um, uh, all these famous people. I, <clears throat> I was sort of out of place. But I got in there, and uh, this was when they paid people to um, do MFAs. <clears throat> I was there for about a year, and I was I, I, uh, I was stalling in my artwork, and I knew that I was sort of playing to expectations, and um, and I was also there was <clears throat> so much new and so many things that were interesting and stimulating that I was uh, in retrospect I was just I was just really confused. You know, there was way too much uh, information, so <clears throat> I really didn't like the work that I was doing. So I, what I did was took out two weeks and did a, a process that I called an extirpative ritual or extirpative process. And the, the way that what my understanding of extirpative was from when I was hitchhiking around the United States in the early 1970s, I stopped in this one coastal town in in North Carolina, and there was a guide there in the house that I was staying at who had written a book on the plague. And he talked about a ritual of uh, extirpative rituals where they, to get rid of the plague, they'd, in these villages, they'd march a goat through uh, the village and just around all the streets and then take the goat outside the village and slaughter it. So the the extirpative ritual for me was to just hole up in the in my studio and from the early morning to late at night take you know like big sheets of paper like this 
this had tablets of them. And I would just start filling them up with images and words. And, but I had an agreement with myself that I would not, I would not use anything that I did to make art <laughs> with it. You know, I, would, I just wanted like to do a, uh, just to get dumped. I, I wanted to get everything out to see what was going on. And I just, I filled up the stacks of them. And I, and I didn't use any of this stuff. You know, I, I felt tempted, well, that, you know, I could work, work that, but I, I didn't use any of it. Uh, but I looked at it and I made the conclusion that what I wanted to do did not fit into sort of two-day format. I would think I eventually thought differently than that, but there was, uh, I, I needed to go a time base somehow. So this is, this is uh, 1975. So video was there, but it was really expensive. Film was even more expensive. And the third time-based thing was performance, and I was not, I was just too chicken shit to do performance. So the, what was left, you could get a tape recorder, <clears throat> and, I, and that was a cheap way to go time-based. And that's, so that's, uh, that's how I got into, got into sound. <laughs> Seriously, that's, it's not, it's, um, so I, was, I, I did some sound pieces for, for my MFA exhibition, and I also did these drawings that were sort of crude, cartoony drawings. My supervisor at the time was John Baldessari, uh, who I didn't have much respect for, for various reasons. <laughs> but I was sort of being groomed to be the third funny conceptualist. So there was John Baldessari, William Wegman, and Baldessari was taking me around to collectors' houses. And I didn't like the... Um, I didn't like the idea of kind of uh, of being, you know, of these collectors being my friends. <laughs> uh, one time we went to the collector's house and Richard Sarah was taking a nap upstairs. So this this is what uh, we're talking about. But but being from this small town, it just did not. I did not like the idea of a life where I had to be friends with uh, these these people who were more comfortable on the golf course than uh, anywhere else. So actually, the second year of my MFA, I, I moved to San Francisco and got involved in grassroots politics. I finished and uh, would take a bus down uh, once a week and and be in residence. But but anyway, the, these audio tape pieces that I started doing were uh, from radio, and then they were cut up. <clears throat> uh, they were cut up. Uh, there, was, there was speech in it, but there was lots of repetition, stammering. Uh, I've internalized that. Uh, but <clears throat> more and more, I, uh, the, I kept leaving more and more words in. And eventually, I did a a piece of nothing but words, and it was of Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford. And he was talking about, <clears throat> you sort of recognize the, the rhetoric even now, uh, he was talking about how to expand the economy. And to expand the economy, you had to stimulate the private sector. And of course, it's really sexual. <clears throat> so I had him, you know, stimulating the private sector and expanding, and expanding, you know, and, and doing this sort of, uh, constructing this orgasm uh, for him. At the same time, I was, you know, working at a, a hippie grocery store in the Mission District, and, you know, two of the people I worked with were there. Um, 
because because uh, the the U.S. let in, I think, 20 families from Chile, and the, the criteria was that the a member of your family had to have been tortured by Pinochet. This was uh, far away from L.A. art collectors' uh, world, and and so I, I was involved in in uh, a variety of po- political radical politics, including one time there I was at a meeting where there was a shooting and one person um, uh, died and another person had his intestines blown out and died about a year later. That's a separate story, but it was a grassroots um, grassroots politics. But it was also like intersecting with a real uh, violent. Uh, violent side of it. Um, anyway, I, I, so I was doing these things, and, and uh, I decided to uh, move back up to Seattle. I was from the Seattle area originally. I actually went. I got into art when I was in Seattle. I had. Uh, I started off as a wood carver. I'd, I've still done it over the years, but <clears throat> and I plan to get back to it once I retire. But anyway, I moved to Seattle and moved into a, I had very few friends uh, from before, uh, that that I knew from before. So I moved into a place and I decided to uh, get back and do the the audio tape cut-ups after about five-year hiatus. And I took a uh, audio audio cassette with a $5 uh, microphone and recorded a rec- interview of Ronald Reagan with Bill Moyers. Bill Moyers is still on television now. I think it's 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 amazing. But this was an interview with Ronald Reagan before he had become a candidate. He was still speaking in uh, uh, you know the storytelling gosh shucks, you know, and the image managers hadn't gotten a hold of him, so he was telling all these stories. So I, uh, there was 45 minutes that I was working with, and I got the, um, I got my tape recorder out, you know, put, <clears throat> uh, would uh, lay down different, well, first of all, I listened to that tape a dozen times, and sort of the same same thing as the extirpative exercise. I promised myself that I wouldn't I wouldn't start cutting up until I had sort of internalized him, <clears throat> that I had sort of taken Reagan inside of me. And this was highly <clears throat> this was highly distasteful. I really hated the guy, everything about the guy. So the the fact that you know, I was getting these mudslide jowls and, you know, and, and breathe. I started breathing with them. But I, I, there were two things. Uh, at the same time, I was, I was studying uh, John Hartfield and uh, George Groves and the Weimar political artists. And, and so the, the thing that I, I remembered, I remembered, well, uh, one was a German, German saying from that I read in a book by Hans uh, Magnus Enzensberger was that that those those who work in the sewers don't have the luxury of not handling shit, you know. So th- <clears throat> so I was I figured that I had to deal with I was dealing with Reagan, so I was handling shit. So I just had to you know uh, live with it, a, a dirty job. And the other was what George Groves said about John Hartfield was that he knew how to hate well. 
So yeah, it was it was unsavory. Uh, I didn't have any friends. I was breathing like Reagan, you know, with <laughs> with Reagan. And so I I, I made this <clears throat> I made this piece that was all Reagan's voice. It took me weeks to do it. It was uh, uh, <clears throat> it was like John Hartfield's uh, photo montage, but it was time based. Uh, I had a roommate that um, I had gone to Evergreen uh, State College. Bruce Pavitt of Sub Pop Records was there. This was Sub Pop pre Nirvana. They were they had a cassette, a series of cassettes on cassette number uh, Sub Pop number five. I had the first version of a of, of a Reagan tape. On the first version, I'll play you the second version in a minute. Uh, on the first version, it had Reagan. This was before he was elected. He goes, oh, I want to be president. I want to live in the White House. <laughs> he, he got elected, and by the, so I had to make a, uh, a new beginning to it. So I changed it to the, for the first time in man's history, I'm president. <laughs> <clears throat> and I can do this with dash and daring do. So the, the you know, the dash and daring do there's a reason for everything in here, and there's a reason for the way it comes within a narrative sequence. But the dash and daring do had to do with his anachronism. You know, he was seen as uh, too old to be president, but his ideas were also 19th century, if not before. So the dash and daring do was in there for, um, for a reason. So the, um, it got on sub-pop number one. Put it on. Uh, it got on sub pop and became kind of an underground hit. But the um, <clears throat> I went, uh, I visited uh, San Francisco, and I visited the house that I used to live in. I used to live in a house with uh, Bruce Barthol, who is the bass player for Country Joe and the Fish. He bought the house from the money they made on the being in in that group. But he was, he was the music director for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. But in other parts of the house, the um, Spain Rodriguez, um, after Robert Crumb, or R. Crumb, the um, probably best known San Francisco underground comic artist. Uh, also in the house was Justin Green, who you may know Justin Green from, he's also San Francisco underground comic artist. He was a one-hit wonder. He had one hit was Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary. It's known as the Citizen Kane of Catholic guilt comics. <laughs> but Spain, Spain uh, heard, uh, well, I bent, went back to San Francisco and um, turned on the KPFA, uh, Pacifica radio station, and I, I didn't know what it was, I frankly did not know what, it was, what was uh, happening. Uh, turned on the radio and K, uh, KPFA, the main community, call, uh, community radio station in San Francisco Bay Area. I was listening for about five or ten minutes and the, the announcer was exacerbated. She goes, okay, okay, I'll play, uh, uh, quit calling in, I'll play it eventually. So the, <clears throat> uh, and she was talking about the Reagan tape. Anyway, so Spain, Spain was friends with 
uh, Art Spiegelman from Raw Magazine, and so he suggested that I send it to him. So it, <clears throat> it showed up in Raw, Raw Magazine on a flexidisc, and I'll, I'll go into... There's little that uh, the drumming at the first and at the last it was structured as political bunting, you know, bunting like on a stage, um, like flag type bunting. So the drum drum is there is as bunting on. It was made to be pop song. It's about three and a half minutes, so it's in pop song format. It was it, anyway. I'll, I'll play. First time in man's history, I uh, I'm president, <laughs> and, and and that and I can do this with dash and daring do. No, you're too old. You're out of touch. <laughs> I don't think I'm out of touch. Asked for too old. Well, I have a very good memory about all the things back in my life. For example, I can remember. Senator Benjamin Hill in 1878, when we were less than 70 years old. <laughs> Good times and bad. Ronald Reagan, you can see and understand the America of dirty streets and poor people. The problem isn't being poor. The problem, the problem is uh, 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 money. And so uh, poverty isn't. Uh, 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 I, uh, okay, I'm supposed to be the big reactionary. Okay, all right. What, what people do you think you represented? The John Birch yeah. Society was praising you. Oh, yes, all right. The John Birch Society. Sure. Milton Friedman. Certainly, the far right. All right. As a matter of fact, uh, a few Republican panaceas, myself and people like myself, organized a task force people outside government and inside. Um, well, this little group gathered and we very carefully would open the car door with the window rolled down, shove the man's arm across the window and then break it. The backbone of America and then break it over the window. Uh, and then the pressure came on, that hidden longing came out and uh, gunshot 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 gunshots and so forth what about government's role in offsetting the negative consequences of the free enterprise business community you talked about oh now no now you get that no now you get back to what i said earlier what i'm talking about is the free marketplace free enterprise the regulations that government exists to, to have and are necessary is yes to ensure that someone can't sell us a can of poisoned meat I think um, a can of poisoned meat had a problem that I think the people must recognize. The problem is that if you open a can of poisoned meat, hold it in your hand, it gets warm very fast while you're drinking it. We punch the holes in the top and drink it. Well, this fellow's made a very economical stein handle. You can buy a dozen of them and have them like you have your silverware. You're serving people um, poisoned foods in the can. You just clamp the stand, snap the stand. You just clamp, clamp the stand, snap the handle onto it, and people hold it by the handle, and the drink doesn't warm up. And you're going to make a million dollars. 
So um, it would be like if Donald Trump got elected now. <clears throat> you know, you couldn't do this with Donald Trump because he already does it better, <laughs> better himself. But um, it went viral. But it went, it went viral in, on college and community radio stations. And also I, I, um, I also did a thing that I learned from George Groves during the, um, actually in 19... 17, 19, 18, like Wilde uh, <clears throat> and the early Weimar Republic, he would do these, you know, portfolios, uh, sell, uh, lithographic portfolios, sell them to collectors to get the money and then do a cheaper version to s distribute it. They'd pass things out uh, for free. So under that principle, I'd, I would sell you know, the, the cassettes and take the money and reproduce a bunch of them and just send them out to as many college stations and community stations as possible. So that's the way it, it got airplay. I did get contacted by a commercial station from New York City. I forget which one. They wanted to take Bill Moyer's voice, which was sort of copyrighted. Reagan, because he was a public official, was not copyrighted. They wanted to take his, or wanted me to take Moyer's voice out and replace it with somebody else's voice. You can do that if you want, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. But, um, yeah, it did, it, it, it took on an afterlife. It was on a uh, LP with a bunch of folk singers, like Psycon, no, no relation. Um, it was uh, Fine Young Cannibals uh, did a dance mix uh, of it. <laughs> it was really weird. It was, you know, I was in my flat in Seattle and at, at about, uh, I was really stoned and watching early MTV at about 11.30 at night and I get a, <clears throat> get a call. Um, hey, uh, you, can we uh, use your, you know, I go, yeah, fine, if you make any money uh, from it or, you know, or send me a record or whatever. Yeah, it was on the the B side of their their first uh, their their first EP, I guess. They didn't send me the record. Um, they were, you know, sort of hip socialists with just didn't get around to the paperwork on it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the the other thing is that it got around in this other mode of distribution. I heard about people uh, using it to say grace before Thanksgiving dinner. It went on a, a, a factory assembly lines. Um, there was one bus driver that took his uh, uh, cassette player and put it on top of his bus and played it, at, you know, in the bus yard. Uh, in offices, it'd go down, uh, it'd follow dictation machines, you know, so they'd be hearing dictation and then they'd pop in that uh, cassette. So it had had this whole other mode of distribution. The, the other sort of stranger part was that I would meet people who would have it memorized. And I met two people that did the whole thing for me with the, you know, like the little cock of the head, Reagan, you know, glint in the eye uh, thing. It was very, you know, so as a mode of reproduction, it was very, it, it was very strange. And I was, th I was trying to think about that, this coming down here, that 
<clears throat> do, do people do that anymore? Do people memorize things to repeat them? When I was working, I had this office job. I did word processing for about a decade. This is because I didn't go with the collectors, <laughs> the art collectors. So I was working temporary agencies and uh, doing office jobs. But I it, it had this one job at Bank of America where because it was telegraphic transfer of funds and you'd try to get into hourly deadlines in the time zones. But once the, you know, the, the hour passed, uh, all this all the traffic of what we had to do just disappeared and would pick up another 15 minutes. So we like, uh, they couldn't let us go, but there were about 25, 30 of us in the room um, sitting there doing nothing. But often this one guy would stand up on the one end of the room and he had full sides of comedy albums memorized and he would he would repeat them, and it was it was just amazing. You know, the whole room would be in stitches. But yeah, I don't I don't think that people memorize uh, memorize or I, you know. And in fact, in a parenthetical way, I was talking to somebody uh, a few weeks ago about this that uh, it doesn't seem like people tell jokes anymore. Uh, you know, like have a like a setup and you know tell a joke. I mean, there, there's stand-up comedians, but you don't do do you do it? Would you do that at a dinner party? Yeah. So it's sort of a disappearing cultural form. So <clears throat> the sort of long-form memorization of things. I, I um, uh, the inspiration for a lot of the tape cut-ups and for it turns out for the, a lot of what I do came from listening to Firesign Theater over and over again. And when I was, um, I, I could repeat, you know, long passages of it. I can't do it now, but I could repeat long passages of it. I've met a, uh, when I was working at Bechtel uh, Corporation as a secretary, uh, I met an, uh, an engineer in a nuclear power plant that, that knew full, you know, could repeat long passages of fire sign theater, despite working on this uh, Susquehanna steam electric station, which was their main project after the Three Mile Island blew up. <laughs> you know, it seemed uh, kind of incongruous. But yeah, the Fine Young Cannibals did a dance mix of it. Uh, Eric B. and Eric B. and Ra Rakim had it in a sample and, and paid in full. It just sort of took on this whole other afterlife. It showed up in. Raw magazine on the Flexidisc. The Flexidisc was um, the company that did it. Evatone refused to do it, although they'd just done something for Hustler magazine and Laurie Anderson. And but they wouldn't. They wouldn't do this. And this is when Reagan just got into office. And the um, the reason is they wanted um, performers released from Reagan as though he was still an actor in Hollywood. And when uh, Art and Francois. Malloy from uh, Raw Magazine said, you know, that'd be, uh, wouldn't that be kind of difficult? Uh, the Avatone said, well, you can just contact his agent. This was when he was president and he was supposed to still have an agent. Uh, and so they said, well, yeah, so they had to go to a place in the Netherlands to have it, have it pressed. And it, but it, it caused a, like a band in Boston type of thing. So that was even better for distribution. But this was a this was part of a uh, a form that I, I figured had some legs in it, 
because I tried to do another Reagan thing after his image handlers had gotten to him and his language had been really sanitized. So I, I knew if I wanted to you know, make a career out of this, I had to get closer to the source of recordings uh, and get a lot of them to sort of titrate them down. So I contacted the Pacifica radio station in Washington, D.C., and they didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I was essentially talking about doing a, you know, editorial, audio editorial cartooning for radio, but it, it was just not something that stuck, you know, it was not, uh, <clears throat> so that, so I went back to working in the office. But um, I, I did, I did other pieces. Um, I, uh, I'll play, I did one of Chuck Norris um, that is pretty lewd. Um, uh, I did, I'll I'll play one that uh, of, uh, also from television. It was Rona Barrett, sort of a Hollywood celebrity celebrity, uh, interview show. And it was with these two childhood stars um, that, one one problem with uh, working in this way is the um, and and probably a problem now more much more than it was then is that uh, you have to have a to undercut somebody there has to be a vernacular ab- about them and if you you know you probably know of Reagan um, but other people you would not you would not know. So there's a way to move from sort of celebrity to like type, stereotype or type. So this is a piece I did with childhood star. So you don't, you don't need to know who these people are. And it's really not about them at all. It's about the, con- it's about the form of the interview itself. Now let's go to Los Angeles. Here is Rona Barrett to tell us what is happening in Hollywood tonight. Rona, Rona, you're on. Tom, thank you. Whatever becomes of child stars? Dean Stockwell gained stardom at a very early age with The Boy with the Green Hair, a film which also featured a young Rusty Tamblin. Perhaps his most memorable performance was as one of the broody, intense teenage killers in Compulsion. Don't you ever go to a baseball game or chase girls or anything? Dirty, evil. You keep your dirty mouth shut! I don't have to listen to your whole house. I don't care. Cool down. I know that Artie's your friend, but I'm older than you, and I know what kind of trouble you can get into. I'm worried about you, John. Will you listen to me? John, listen. Dean Stockwell and Russ Tamlin are with us tonight. Please welcome them. How nice to see you both. It's been such a long time. Nice to see you, Rona. You look the same, Dean. I don't look the same. (laughs) (laughs) You're very recognizable with the green hair. No, it's fine. Ah, that's why you're wearing the hat. No, no. Let me ask ask you something. Let me ask you something seriously. (laughs) You were both successful child and teen actors, yet it seemed when you started reaching... Adulthood. Adulthood. Something happened. Something happened. What happened? What happened? happened? Right. No, actually, when I started reaching... um, uh, Adulthood. Yeah adulthood um 
I did uh, quite well as far as you're talking about career. I didn't have any like adolescent fallout. I quit the business of my own volition at 16 to go and gather my, you know, get my head together. Ah, that's why you're wearing the hat. No, 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 not necessarily. The, the, you know, but I quit the business to go and gather my, you know, get my head together. Then came back and uh, did very well and dropped out again. Then it was very strange. My experience was like the opposite. Okay, both of you talk about dropping out. Why at 16 was it necessary for you to drop out? Well, for me, I got involved with that movement. I got involved with the beat generation and the artists mm. very deeply. And what happened to you? Just, well, me, well me, I, me sh- I cut off all my hair. Ah, oh, that's why you're wearing the hat, huh? Mm. Words as a male blanket, all sorts of different. Seriously, not, you're yes. not putting me on. No, I'm not putting you on. Mm-hmm. And used a different name. And I worked on the railroad. Dean, be careful. Okay, I would pick fruit. Okay, I would pick zillions of pimples. I felt like a piece of meat. The horrors of being teen stars. And, <laughs> but uh, I got involved with the beat generation and the artists and and the movers that really moved the whole movement, that really moved the whole thing. Well, Therefore, I, I wasn't and concerned I... about my bloody career. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but I don't think that... that, 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 that yeah, Dean and I both... Uh, uh, Dean, wait, listen. In my situation, I can imagine I'm... Uh, We're talking with Russ Tamblin and Dean Stockwell. I got, I've got, I've got one uh, that's a classic. And Dean Stockwell. I mean, you know, you, you know, I mean. You... Tom. All right, thank you, Rhonda. Yeah, and anyway, so it's a, um, it's a form of portraiture at a certain level, and in not just, um, not just cutting things up to undercut them. Uh, there is a. You know, you could do kind of a media critique if you wanted to. But I got started making something of a living of it, uh, doing pieces for New American Radio. This was a uh, commissioning organization that, that was on national public radio. They paid well. Uh, it was sort of an independent professional thing. And, and so I did... Um, they had... Uh, this is in the late 80s they, and, and beyond. Uh, I had two, two pieces with them. One was uh, based upon the, the television show Hotel. And it was about a half an, half an hour long piece or 25 minutes. I won't play that for you, but I'll play the next one for you. It's... Uh, 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 it's digital. All the other, the, the, the stuff that you just heard was all razor blade, uh, splicing block and razor blade. Um, I don't know what I, I would have been really prolific if I'd had digital at that time. But this piece I did, um, I went and visited probably my best friend at the time. This is, uh, we went to grad school together at, at Wesleyan. This was like about 10 years later. Uh, the first degree did so well economically, I thought I'd go back and get a second one. And I visited him in, in uh, Colorado. Now, uh, you, you may know him. If you know the book I edited called Wireless Imagination, Sound Radio and, uh, and the Avant-Garde, the, he was the, the guy who 
wrote the essay on surrealism and sound. It still um, it still holds up today. It's very good. He doesn't. Uh, he's um, he's probably the smartest, innately smartest guy I know. When I, and also, he's, but he's like a he's like a low life intellect. When I visited him in Colorado, he was working at Shorty's Barbecue, but also reading hieroglyphics. You know, so that <clears throat> that's what um, he's still a, a very good friend. Although we have an ocean and a continent between us. But this, this is a different, this is a different ball game. Instead of like internalizing uh, somebody that you detest, uh, like Reagan, this was working with your best friend's voice for hours and hours and hours. If you can imagine whoever your best friend is and taking their voice and writing, it's essentially writing with your best friend's voice. And I, w I wanted to do a, you know, kind of a Archibald Prize type of <laughs> portrait of him. Um, but it, it was uh, in, in audio. And because he was a, a scholar of surrealism, it, it was not a, a so much sort of showing some contradiction. Or it's, it's, it's more of an intensification of the of different attributes. Of, and you'll hear again in in different parts that um, the form of conversation, you know, like a representation of the interaction as well as, uh, as, as well as the, uh, as well as the content. You know, I, I've become um, pretty much just a writer, but there are these forms of writing and I think this still has legs. I, I really haven't heard anybody sort of follow up on this. I think there are, are ways to, to write with, with other people's voices and other people's situations as a, uh, you know, from phoneme to phoneme and from little stammer to little stammer and set up. Uh, <clears throat> I think it is a, a form of writing that st um, still has legs in it. Anyway, this is called the Trump, Trump bone, you know, like Trump, Trump, uh, Fooling the ear, or the, but trombone combined with trombone of Chris Schiff. I'll, I'll give you <clears throat> a few warnings when he's talking about "Hello, George, how are you?" He's talking. <clears throat> there's a conflation between George Patton, General George Patton, uh, after at, during World War II, and George Crumb, the composer. And Patton, he was he was talking about Patton <clears throat> uh, was talking about heroic death in battle, you know, sort of getting this ecstasy of, you know, getting riddled with bullets, uh, whereas uh, George Crumb was an absent-minded guy. So he, people would pass him on the street and go, hello, George, you know, hello, George, how are you? And, and, and he would go walking past and then realize that somebody said his name and come running back to say hello. So uh, this is a conflation. Uh, the first part is a conflation of George Patton and, and George Crumb. And the thing about being riddled with fish and your heart, heart flopping on a sidewalk, that, so that's where the, sort of the, the license comes in for, from the surrealism. Hi, my name is Chris Schiff. I'm a trombonist from Colorado. And what you're about to hear is a little trip that Doug Kahn and I took in the summer of 1988. 
Uh, it's a brief depiction of some of the unnatural wonders that one finds daily in Colorado. Uh, I haven't heard it yet myself, and I waive all rights uh, to whatever might be contained therein, including Doug's own personal character assassinations. <laughs> Looks like big chunks have fallen off the, the third flat iron up there. Kind of looks like freshly exposed rock up there. Kind of looks like up there. That's the Bureau of Standards there. Mm. Mother Cabrini Shrine that way. Yeah, that's Devil's Thumb. That's Red Rocks Amphitheater. Flash and trash sticking up sideways. It's all right there. Kiss you on the lips. But I'll allow you to kiss my eye. Cauterization of my eye. people conceive of death as this, um, some people conceive of it as a sensory experience, like suddenly they won't feel a lot of things, right? You know, you hear, my legs are cold, can't feel anything with my legs. <clears throat> some people conceive of death as this beautiful sound. <laughs> You know, for every person who's feeling-oriented, I'll bet there's one out there that's sound-oriented just as much. 
it's like almost like you want some people are looking for for exquisite pain in death right like people like pat and wanted pat and wanted to die in battle you know and feel his body riddled with bullets and i think other people would like to have feel their bodies riddled with oral bullets you know a lot the same way the you know piercing screams and things as they're going through but uh, some people are looking for people like Pat and you could get really really drunk and then go and and hear his body riddled with bullets and see his body riddled with bullets it was kind of a total sensory experience you could go and and feel his body riddled with bullets and he was so spaced out like they'd see him and you'd walk by him and say hello George how are you <laughs> and he'd walk like a hundred yards further and wouldn't say a word and then he would like come jogging back to say hello to you right? like <laughs> a little, little slow on the uptake there George <laughs> you'd walk by him and say and he'd walk like a hundred yards and then he would like come jogging back further <laughs> a little little slow on the uptake there George <laughs> I heard George is a nice guy though some people are looking for for exquisite pain in death you know feel their bodies riddled with fish feel their bodies flopping on a sidewalk feel their bodies riddled with dying fish flopping on a sidewalk some people are looking for for exquisite death right like get really really exquisite drunk and then go and and bleed like sheep you could bleed like exquisite sheep oh it's so modern bleeding like sheep <laughs> now now here's the the part with the percussion you'll like this <laughs> a bone got caught got caught in my throat aru aru <laughs> aru aru Aru, aru. There's some point in your life when you discover how to live, when you discover my heart is flopping on a sidewalk, and that's the way how to live. And that's the way I feel when I'm playing in an orchestra, right? Okay, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm going to fast forward. Uh, th like I said, this is about a half an hour piece. And uh, a lot of this uh, uh, has to do with the, or a lot of what you just heard was, ha has to do with the same thing that um, was going on in the Reagan piece, is if you just have a audio only, you have to, you have to reinstitute the body in some way. And so if you have uh, your heart flopping on the sidewalk like, you know, fish. There's some body there. So, but this next part is, um, well, we'll hear it. Menus. Uh, thank you. Our soup today is chicken noodle. Yeah, that's good. Okay. You don't 
need one. Okay. Rebecca's your waitress. She'll be right with you. Summer salads are on that thing right there, and I'll bring you some silverware. Just a cafe scene. I think that I'm going to have a turkey terrific. Okay, how about some uh, And uh, I would like the Italian dressing on it, please. No cheese, terrific. And let's see, I got a choice of potatoes, is that correct? Yes, Okay, I'll take the French fries then. French fries? Mm-hmm. And to drink, I guess, just a small terrific. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Now, our Italian dressing is whipped. That's why it looks like it's creamy, but it's just whipped. There's no oh. dairy in it. Okay? I'm a kind of potato. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. <laughs> no, I found this book where this guy tries to draw pictures by setting up a pendulum, two pendulums, in the ratio, ratios of the harmonic intervals. And... Uh, he claims that, that if you could get choose the right interval, the interval of the sound of God I mean, I speaking the word that created the world, that you could create another world. <laughs> May I have a glass of water also, please? I bought the book. It was too interesting to throw away. <laughs> There's this poem at the beginning where, where the guy, he's a minister, and he starts to praise God for coming up with the system of kingdom, phylum, class, and order, right? <laughs> Somebody had to do it. <laughs> May I have a glass of water also, please? Praise God for class and order, right? <laughs> May I have a glass of water also, please? Yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's like, yeah, first, yeah, first, yeah, first is tuba, tuba and two two measure shot and three rugs for five grimaces even six and then you might have something completely different no relation whatsoever it's like a, no it's like no no may i have a glass of water also please his head is so nice. He went to um, an ear specialist and had him build plastic ears for his head. May I have a glass of water also, please? Rain tonight. <laughs> we saw Fellini Satericon last night. There's a scene in there where there's a belch reader. The guy goes, Bleh. and then the guy says, oh, that's very good. Your wife will have a fine new son. <laughs> she shall have gold for all eternity. Flotation. <laughs> You know, Dagwood on t uh, I'm going to trail off there. What, what happened with this piece? Um, at, at one point, Chris starts talking about the um, post-apocalyptic, uh, the Mad Max uh, movies, you know, and, and the second one with Tina Turner in it. It's hard to lead up to this. Um, but it, he, was, he was saying that if it was a real depiction of a post-apocalyptic 
social order, you wouldn't have people as handsome as Tina Turner and Mel Gibson around. You'd, they'd uh, all be bald and teeth falling out and projectile vomiting. And sort of that with the uh, sort of the belt reader, you know, I mean, this is tame. This is really tame stuff. So uh, this, is my, this is probably the end of my career for um, the people from uh, in, in national radio. <clears throat> the people who commissioned it said, you know, got this. And, and they go, well, we, we can't play it. It's vulgar and nihilistic. <laughs> it would, you know, again, this is like, this was uh, just late 80s on national, uh, this was after the Robert Maplethorpe and Helen, uh, not, not Helen Hughes, Holly Hughes, it's wrong Helen Hughes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, Holly Hughes, the defunding of the National Endowment for the Arts. So this was in the, this was in the wake of that. And they were really worried about getting funding for, uh, from national source, you know, government sources and doing the wrong thing. But anyway, they, they said it was, you know, the, the head of this organization um, said it was vulgar and nihilistic. And I, I thought that was really interesting because the Volga and the Nile are two of the world's major river systems. <laughs> But anyway, so, uh, but when she, uh, I didn't think of that when, when she made the phone call, uh, I did respond, well, if you want uh, vulgar and nihilistic, well, then go fuck yourself, you know? <laughs> and that was, so that was, uh, that was probably, I mean, that was the, probably not the right response, but that was the only response uh, that I had. So that was, <clears throat> that was kind of the end of my, um, uh, my uh, uh, that line of work. Um, so anyway, I'll I'll uh, end it. Um, I'll end it there. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au